0: It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we've got Rob Seacrest. He's the co-founder and president of Polaris Equity Group. Rob, thanks for being with us.
1: Thanks, Josh. Happy to be back.
0: Appreciate it. So Polaris Fund, for those that don't know, it's an investment vehicle that makes real estate value-add bridge loans on commercial property with cannabis-related business operators. The fund is secured by first lien real estate loans, has a target net yield of 15% with monthly distributions, and all of the Polaris fund investments are uh, conservatively underwritten and vigorously vetted. Um, Not sure many people know what that means, Rob, so why don't you tell us how you got into the game and what that means?
1: Sure, so uh, Polaris is a value-add bridge lender. That's our expertise. We've done more than 5,000 of those types of transactions for over a billion dollars. When we use the word value add in the vernacular for lending, that means a portion of the loan amount is, is a pre-approved budget to go back into the property to enhance the value. Whether that's fix and flip, cosmetic rehabs, um, ground up construction, tenant improvements, entitlements, whatever, whatever it might be. So that's what value add for us is. So we're, we're actually have to underwrite the, the budget, the property, the as is value, and the fully stabilized value but in addition to that we have to keep working after post closing other than just collecting the borrower's payments we have to process draws um, to go back to, to put that money back into that property so that's what what we do and how we kind of got here is that our expertise in doing those types of value-add transactions were necessary when um, cannabis properties uh, cannabis use properties became um, you know uh, an opportunity out there for the for an asset class so we used our expertise and we were one of the first, if not the first dedicated lender, solely dedicated to the cannabis space. And so we've pivoted to that in 2016. Um, And how we got there is we used to get our investors 11, 12% and those yields started compressing from 2014 to 2016 from 11, 12% down to eight, 9%. But more importantly, the loan to values went up from the industry norms of 60 to 65% to 70, 75, 80, and 90% on purchases and there was no change in the quality of the sponsor of the properties. And so we were um, not uh, interested in continuing to, to push capital out, and we are just watching things shake out. And during that time in 2014, our local Congressman, congressman Dana Rohrabacher passed the Rohrabacher Blumenauer Amendment, which is the most significant um, cannabis uh, amendment that has ever been passed by Congress to date. And most people have no idea it exists, and that is that this amendment defunded the Department of Justice from prosecuting any cannabis related business in a medically licensed state. So no matter what administration is in power, Congress has used the power of the purse to defund um, the, the Department of Justice or the executive branch from any prosecution. So once that was in place, we felt comfortable originating to the owners of commercial properties and allowing for cannabis use tenants and not having a concern that the tenant could be prosecuted and cause that transaction become distressed because we're having to, the borrowers having to replace the tenant. So, we um, we pivoted in 2016. We launched our fund in 2018, and then we converted to a, a mortgage rate in 2020. Uh, as of you know, today, we're the large. We've done more transactions than any lender in the in the country. We've been we were the first fully dedicated lender to the space nationally. And um, you know, it's it's been an interesting fun ride. So happy to get into it and answer more detailed questions.
0: Well, let me just talk about a, a couple of, of words that you use, a bridge loan and REIT, those kind of sure. specific to the industry. So a real estate investment trust is is what you guys have and you're kind of using these bridge loans can you explain to me, or like, uh, explain to the audience rather, what that REIT is, sure. why it's important, and more importantly, why a bridge loan is important for the industry, a mezzanine loan or whatever you wanna call it. What is the point of that? Why is that important? And what difficulty to, do uh, cannabis business owners have in trying to find bridge loans and REITs like yours?
1: Yeah, so first of all, wh- when we use the word REIT, Um, we're only, we are not a traditional read traditional tree reads own the real estate. That would be an IPR or something like that, or treehouse. Um, we are a lender, so we are a mortgage read. So basically for us, we just get the tax advantage for our investors as traditional reads. So that's the, the only difference there is we're still a lender. We don't own properties on, on bridge lending. Our capital is a different type of capital to to build and, f- and stabilize these properties because we have to move quickly to to, to uh, close these transactions we have to underwrite the budgets on as is and fully stabilized values we have to do feasibility reviews on the budgets in advance and then we have to continue working pl- post-close typically 50 to 100 draws per transaction are processed and so that is a different price loan it's a much more expensive loan because there's a lot more going on once you fully stabilize that property, you built it and stabilized it, you're going to refinance out of that short bridge term loan, bridge meaning short, into a lower cost, uh, fully stabilized loan, because now you've got a tenant that is actually generating cash flow. And now that that qualifies for tr- more of the traditional loans.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um when looking at opportunities, is this more for emerging markets that are trying to get licenses and facilities? Or are you also working kind of in the same way that IIPR is with sale leaseback options? Are you looking at um, West Coast, East Coast? How does that work? Sure.
1: So as a, as a lender, we're agnostic for the most part of any of the 36 or so states out there that are currently licensed. So what we're more focused on is looking for the most experienced operators with the, with the strongest sponsors and the best properties across the nation. So we are looking for those primary elements. And then we actually have, we built our own first proprietary database in the entire industry to understand what the metrics are and use data to make the decisions when we want to underwrite a transaction in uh, one of the various uh, states out there. So that's how we that's how we're looking at it.
0: Where's the hot market at? With real estate kind of all over the place and we're seeing maybe some bubble um, sectors like malls to me look crazy as they're defaulting and no one's really shopping at a mall, whereas cannabis is hot. But either way you look at it, it seems like commercial real estate is at an all time high and I'm wondering if it's going to stay there. But tell me where the hot market is and and how long it's going to stay hot
1: um so this this specialty asset class is very very difficult to originate even for a lender that is very steeped in knowing how to originate transactions once you start moving into this specialty use asset class you have to understand the licensing and how those how the how that affects the property value and how it affects the tenant and you need to understand all the uh the the issues that come along with that um title insurance property insurance and how do you how do you originate a transaction with a vehicle where your your primary vehicle of capital that you're deploying states that the you know manager uh, cannot do anything that's federally or uh, you know f- federally illegal? And even though we are only lending to the owners of properties, a lot of um, uh, people would might might. might think that we're doing we're in you know we're we're operating in the illegal side of the business which we're not so you've got to think your way through of how do you de- delineate and how do you keep that credit policy clearly separating the owner of the property from the tenant and even if it's owner user so I don't want to get into too, too much of the detail of how we do that, but we had a very clear thought process of how that was developed. And we developed it, our uh, underwriting uh, credit policy with Citus Asset Management, one of the world's premier underwriters that's done $7 trillion uh, for the likes of Oak Tree and BlackRock. And um, that's you know kind of how we've, we've been building and aggregating this from 2000 transactions that we've analyzed. We've closed 50.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And out of those, how many are plant touching? Are these producers and processor retailers or is it just ancillary?
1: So virtually all of our transactions at some point will be plant touching for the operators, not the owner. Um, Virtually all of our transactions are very large budgets. um, And that's typically going to be at least have some portion. Generally, the largest portion will be indoor cultivation. And then you might have some additional licenses along with that. Um, as extraction, you know, uh, distribution or whatever. We, the least that we have is dispensaries because those seem to be the easiest to underwrite and the least ratio of budget as a percentage of the loan to the purchase price or the value of the property. Um, and so those are the, the easiest for our competitors to do those types of transactions and the, it, it doesn't really need to process 50 to 100 draws for those transactions. You might have a budget of a half million or a million bucks Uh, Relative to our budgets, are 5 million, 10 million,
0: 15 million. Hmm. You've done 175 million since 2010. You mentioned Poseidon Asset Management as an underwriter. How many other folks does it take to get involved for this process? Uh, Sure.
1: So the, you, you, uh, the, uh, the, our credit policy was was written with Citus Asset Management. And I think I, I thought you might have said Poseidon and Poseidon is one of our uh, cannabis equity funds. I just want to decouple that if that's what I heard. If, if yeah, you
0: did. Thank you for clarifying.
1: Yeah. Uh, and very well respected peer. But they're on the cannabis operator. They're providing equity to cannabis operators and not um, uh, associated with Citus. Um, but I'm sorry, what was your, your question again?
0: So I was curious about with CITUS as the underwriter, who else is involved in order for you to get to 175 million yeah. in, in lending in the last 11 years? That's a lot. So yeah. wh- what is involved with that? Who who do you have to work with? How does it work?
1: Sure, so CITUS is not the underwriter. They're who we co-developed our, our credit policy with. We are still the underwriter. We still do our, everything internally ourselves. And um, you know uh, it was a, 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 a huge it's a, a huge a enormous challenge to, to deploy. It's now about 177 million over 50 transactions since 2016. Um, when we started it was very difficult to allocate the capital even once we had underwritten and understood the space. it was really difficult to build sources of capital. We would have to syndicate transactions originally until we, until we raised our fund in 2018. Once we got the fund up and running, um, it became slightly easier. Um, but now that the fund is in excess of 100 million and three years of audited financials, now it's it's we've got the, a, a dedicated vehicle, and that that dedicated vehicle funds all of our transactions. We don't syndicate transactions anymore. So it's it's a very streamlined, clean process now.
0: Okay. So with. Um you mentioned IIPR earlier, a real estate investment trust that uh, does some sale lease back options. You guys are actually, um, you don't wait for that. You guys are going to help people to acquire and build out cannabis properties. Is that right?
1: Correct. So uh, this is the first asset class in the nation that even if there's the property exists, it's not built out yet for cannabis use. And it has to be built out and certified by the state and the city, the local municipality to be cannabis use. Um, And so IIPR and other REITs have traditionally focused on fully stabilized transactions that have a tenant that's producing, um, and so somebody still has to build those properties. And so you can't, you 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 it's more difficult, or you're not going to get as a, a good of a deal with IIPR or some of these other if your facility isn't, isn't stabilized and cash flowing. So you want to build your facility, get it up and and stabilized, and you may or may not want to have a 25-year lease or whatever their terms are with escalators built in when you're not sure where the market is going to go over the next 25 years so um this is just a different option um and it may not even be an option to get on iiprs or, or tree houses or any of these other traditional REITs. that's a farther down the road stage of the process they're more they're one of the potential exit strategies for it so our transactions of the 50 transactions, almost half of those have been paid off already by primarily other private lenders or state or federal credit union, or I'm sorry, state or, yeah, our credit, uh, state banks or credit unions, or they could be with a REIT, um, uh, a, a traditional REIT such as IIPR. So those are the four, the three primary, uh, channels of, of, of our transactions being paid off.
0: Okay. How much of distressed assets are you looking at? I'm curious with uh, the massive amount of building that's going on, especially up in Canada between Aurora and Canopy, it seems like they have produced a lot of buildings that maybe they don't need. And I'm curious if there's an opportunity for new entrants to come in, whether it's West Coast or or the East Coast, to look at distressed assets. Is that something that your clients are sure. looking at? Are they looking for value or just to get in at any cost? Yeah.
1: If we were to lend in the Canadian market, we only lend in the U.S. market, we would be the expert, we would be the exact lender that you would want to use if you wanted to acquire a distressed asset, one that was partially built, especially, it's a very difficult uh, process to go midstream on a transaction. Um, So we would be that type of lender. The the Canadian market and the U.S. market are two totally separate markets. Canadian had no experience and they went big, and build these enormous facilities and had no idea uh, if they would work or not. Nobody had ever built a million square foot facility um, previously, as opposed to in the the United States market, there was no uh, uh, huge amounts of capital as the industry was growing. And so all these transactions were basically the capital was raised either directly by the operators themselves or what debt was available was very small amounts that were coming from private lenders that were very, know really analyzing these transactions before they were letting the money out the door to to build these facilities so i think the 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 u.s market is much more controlled and less uh of a of a distress situation and i just don't see the distress market coming through yet um on on the build or the on the on the the facilities maybe over time in three years or 24 months maybe there might be some operators that fail but even if an operator fails the the real estate which is what our collateral you can replace that tenant so we have a different perspective than an uh, than an operator where it might be over overbuilt or something like that so and by the way we do analyze what the current market Uh, capacities for each license state, for each license type in each state. So we know have we reached market capacity and nobody else has has looked at that. Nobody, this is, we were the first ones here. There was no data to pull. So we had to build our own databases to extrapolate that information for
0: underwriting. Is there anywhere that you don't want to do business? It seems to me that Oklahoma is overbuilt. I'll put that in air quotes with 7,500 licenses. It's twice that of, of Oregon. I personally am, am a little nervous for the market there. Is there anywhere that you're just like, nah, we're not gonna do business there? So um,
1: it's, it's different from an operator side, from a lender's side. Hmm. So uh, a California, which is the largest market under one um, type of license uh, compliance, or an Oklahoma, to a lender, that's a e- very easily replaceable tenant. So in that aspect, those are markets that we feel more comfortable in as opposed to, and, and we're analyzing each of these things with our database and our underwriting criteria, but as opposed to a limited license state like Florida with 22 licenses or so, and it has to be fully uh, vertically integrated, that, we have a, that for an operator might be great, but for a lender, there's not that, if, if I was to foreclose on a transaction in Florida and I had to replace that tenant, do you think it's going to be easy to replace that whole tenant for the vertical capacity, you know, the entire vertically integrated line, uh, asset base, or do you think that the other uh, 21 uh, license holders are just going to expand their capacity and absorb what the production was for there? So we, we have, the lender looks at it differently. We want to be able to easily replace tenants, whereas an operator wants a limited license and protected market.
0: Mm-hmm with um, with your clients looking at an eighteen percent annualized uh, internal rate of return, you're able to kind of look at opportunities, whether they're good or bad, and you guys are, are figuring all of that out. seems to me like you guys are on on point with at least one percent per month, which is phenomenal. How are you guys doing that?
1: Um, there's a couple of aspects that 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 get those outsized returns for our investors. Uh, the first aspect is because we're a bridge lender, we're charging more for our our high performance capital. We have uh, publicly traded companies that come to us that could go and get more institutional priced rates at six percent, and they're borrowing from us in the mid double, digit, double digits. And you might ask, why would they? Why would they do that? And it's simply because these facilities do ten to fifteen times more revenue uh, per month than a traditional non-cannabis. And how that equates is, is that you know, our our borrowers are doing 1 million to $5 million a month in revenue. And so every month that we can save them in the build time to get that facility up and operating equates to millions of dollars. And so we typically save at least 20% and some as much as, as 50% if it's a, a lower cost rate. Um, and that might be as much as $30 million uh, if it was six months and $5 million a month. And so in that particular transaction, Why would you try to get a 6% rate when it's gonna cost you, you lost 30 million in operational income from the facility. So that's why everybody comes to us and we have a 100% closing ratio.
0: Okay. Are you nervous at all about the Moore Act or the federal legalization at all? With banking coming in, it seems like SBA and and other banks would be competing against you. Uh, What is your plan to pivot to stay relevant with the eventuality that banking becomes a thing?
1: Well, we welcome that and we're actually tracking all the banks. So we know that there's already banks lending directly anywhere from LIBOR plus 300 to LIBOR plus 450. So there's a big misnomer that this isn't, there's no direct, there's 695 banks that are doing depositor for tier one plant touching. And of those 695 banks, there's probably five to 10% of those that are actually lending directly. So the fact that everybody thinks there's no lending or banking is just completely off the grid or off the you know is, is absur- absurd we've never seen in one of our borrowers. if one of our borrowers came to us and didn't have banking we would be like there's a big problem here they all have banking it's already in place and so if a bank wants to go into this regardless of the more act and the safe act or states act whatever it is they still have to build the compliance department to board those those deposits and that's the part that these banks haven't done and they have to get their um their existing depositors and their board to agree to be in a sin business or it's perceived as a sin business so i don't see that much of a changing what i do see have changing if, if that happens is probably you would be able to get past uh, you would have the credit card uh, transactions happen which would eliminate the cash buildup at the dispensary so that's where the cash builds up but all the transactions between Cannabis-related businesses do not happen in cash. Just the dispensaries are bringing the cash back from that level of the sale. Um, our bank is actually able to uh, utilize debit cards now, so they're they're working past that. And I just don't see that being a, a, an issue for us. If this a bank wants to be in right now, they'll be they they can go ahead and be a depositor, of a bank, or they could be a lender if they feel comfortable in that space. So, in in and on top of that the banks don't do bridge lending and cannot process draws like we do. So it's never going to be a competitor to us. And we specifically picked that lane and made a conscious decision to do that when we're analyzing the space in 2014 to 2016.
0: Mm -hmm. With the the current political landscape the way it is, we saw a a huge spike in speculation after the election. Everyone thought that uh, legalization would happen. I'm curious what you what you anticipate um, since January? Kind of the the cannabis uh, the stocks have have since corrected significantly, and so curious about the, what you plan on or where you guys are thinking um, politically where things might be headed. Whether that's federal legalization, the MORE Act had its fifth uh, fifth time in the House, I think last week. So there is there's there's more happening all of the time, and I'm wondering how you guys are preparing for that.
1: Um, I'm less bullish than my peers. I believe that if the Biden administration wanted to uh, send a message to this sector, they would have reinstated the coal memo day one. Doesn't take an act of Congress; they could have easily done that. Um, that would have signaled to the entire industry. So I knew immediately that they weren't headed that way. And I don't know why people didn't pick up on that. It's it's the simplest thing they could have done. Um, the House is no big deal. You're going to always pass any anything through committee or the floor. So I wouldn't focus over there. That's kind of just a given. It's the Senate that you got to get it through. And to get 60 senators for to, to break the filibuster is going to be enormously challenging when you've got both parties kind of at such odds against each other. Um, and I I I I try to break these two things apart, which most people don't think about it until I say it. The there's two things happening. The political capital is behind decriminalization, but but for businesses, it's legalization. So decriminalization is more for pers- people, legalization is for companies. And so the big push or the political capital, and that's what drives Congress, is decriminalization. I don't see that reaching over to the side of, of, of legalization or deconflicting from federal policy. In in the near term, um, and and the reason for that is that, first of all, we're coming up into the midterms fairly shortly. Here, there's not enough uh, senators that, that that the that that the Republicans are would vote, would vote with this with the Democrats to to pass this. And on top of all this, everybody tries to make the the bills broader and broader and broader. And the more broader you make it, the less that you can get a consensus of everybody. If I was to be, uh, if if you and I were were, uh, lobbyists here and trying to push something through, I would focus on these two narrow things. I'd focus on the credit cards and I'd focus on 280E. You could just, it takes Congress to to, to get uh, 280E. Uh, implemented and it could follow the 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 state's rules there. And now you've got a situation where you just increase the EBITDA, the net EBITDA of all these companies across the nation. And if you could also and, and the other one I would focus on is as credit cards because then you you eliminate the buildup of cash. Those are so narrow and easy to do um, that I would start there. And I think you just need to chip away at these things. If you the broader you make it, the harder it's going to be. But you can't get any of these things done without criminal reform because that's where the political capital is. And there's be careful what you wish for. It, the more that you continue to make it uh, uh, legal, the less the, the less chances that you're going to have to be able to continue to correct, collect your taxes because it becomes instead of a um, it becomes instead of being illegal, it's a code violation for the property. And so that's, that's you've, we've got dispensaries in Los Angeles where you cannot tell one from the other that one's licensed and one's not. Mm-hmm. And it's not a crime for somebody to buy there. They don't know the products look the same. Mm-hmm. And so one guy's having to pay taxes and the other guy's not and he's, pay, he's doing everything right. And so mm-hmm. that if you continue to decriminalize it, you're gonna continue to have this disparity between how do you enforce this? And that's a, a difficult issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Will we see um, a change in, in the House and Senate uh, midterms? i um, wondering if not enough change is happening fast enough and if the Democrats will lose the House and Senate and what that means for a cannabis industry um, in the second half of the administration's time.
1: So this is back to just my personal prognostication. Um, many of my friends and even Relatives um, have said that they feel that the Democrat Party has left them, and I think that the Democrats, because they got both the House and the Senate and the executive branch narrowly, that they have gone. They don't know how long they're going to have this this power. And so, instead of trying to work with uh, Republicans and to come to a consensus, they're just went all out, and the Democrat Party has a wide range of factions at this point. And the one that is the most uh, verbal or, you know, pushing things is one of the more extreme for in in traditional Democrats' eyes, depending on where you're at, maybe you're in that camp or not. But the the issue is, is that you've got a more narrow brand of the the Democratic party pushing so hard that I think that you're gonna start losing Democrats in the more conservative uh, areas of the country. And so I believe that they're probably going to come they're probably going to lose power um, from the next election cycle or continue to lose states um, or uh, representatives in the house and as we get to the senate there's a, a big a lot of different senators that are coming up for uh, that are retiring or, or things replacing but if you were to eliminate that aspect if it was just uh, apples to apples i think that they that the democrats might lose power because they went and over, over- so far without trying to get a consensus from from the republican side now I, you know, I I'm happy that they're trying to go as far as they possibly can, but it's difficult um, if you don't have if you're, you're going to lose power after you went, went that direction, you better be sure you've got it. You, you can get those bills through.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't think they can. I mean, you're going to have to do it through budget reconciliation.
0: What about the, the, the taxes that's going to happen? I mean, this isn't a, a, a tax podcast, but <laughs> there's a lot of stuff happening in politics, and a lot of that is, is impacting the cannabis industry. And I'm wondering about either your personal opinion or otherwise about the potential for capital gains. So if they remove a 1031 exchange, what will that do to the industry? What will it do to the industry if they increase short-term and long-term capital gains? There's a lot of speculation in housing and, and um, commercial properties, but... Uh, the savvy ones are going to take a look at these cap gain increases, the short term, the uh, 1031, and maybe rethink what they're doing. Is that something that you're already hearing about? How is that going to impact the industry? Um,
1: you and I looked like we've been probably through a few presidential uh, administrations. And so I think that we're old enough to know that this is just their, their opening volley. Um, I think that every administration, when they talk about tax policy or where they're going to go, they set out that bookend so far out that they leave, you know, lots and lots and lots of room to negotiate in there. So I don't think that those things are going to get through. Um, I don't think that that we're going to have to worry about that. I think there might be some some meeting in the middle there, but I don't. I can't imagine that uh, that that the things that they're talking about that they're going to get all of those those items. Um, capital gains to eliminate 1031 exchange. I just don't see it there. You would lose your own party if you did that. Um, so I, that's just my personal opinion. We'll, we'll see where I think there's somewhere somewhere in the middle, maybe not from the middle of that bookend, maybe closer to one side or the other, but um, I don't see that happening. But regarding taxes in, in general, um, I don't see a complete federal legalization that is non-limited in some way, because if California, if you and I are the senators from California, why would we uh, uh, allow, um, you know, a complete federal legalization when now this interstate commerce clause allows any product to be brought in from any other state and there's other states with lower CapEx and OpEx basis and lower taxes that could import into California vice versa. And so I just don't see that happening. So I, I think that no matter what way it goes, it'll be most likely de-conflicted from pet- federal policy so that those barriers can still maintain in between the individual states, however they do it.
0: Do you see anybody racing to complete transactions to um, avoid the elimination of those tax benefits? Is there anybody making these decisions now in the eventuality that that could happen?
1: If if I was a CEO of the um, of a cannabis operator, that would not be i would be more making my business decisions on growth um cash flows and how we how we want to position that would not be one of my considerations um i i don't think that if you're betting on politics it's it's work on the things that are the known uh, at this point i wouldn't be factored that in if it had passed the house and the senate um, uh, you know, uh, committee votes and there was, and there were, uh, or, or, I'm sorry, both floor votes had passed and they were reconciling it. At that point, I would be, I, now I'd put the gas on and be looking at that.
0: Mm-hmm. What are you looking at? Are you uh, advising anybody to be looking at anything in particular? What is your What is your advice right now in a world of uncertainty?
1: Um. So for us, we try to take that speculation out. We are not, uh, we're not trying to make predictions on the the operators. We're just looking and underwriting data. We're not making um, projections on who's going to be the top one in the nation. We're looking at who has the most experience. Um, we're looking for the best, the strongest sponsors, and we only value the real estate, uh, the value of the real estate. We do not uh, book in the value of the tenant, uh, business value, or their or their licenses or things like that. So. We've eliminated that speculation. We're only looking at the value of that property. And then we have protective equity and personal guarantees and all those things. So we've tried to make an approach where people could enter this sector um, of cannabis, have some, some exposure to cannabis, but de-risked it as much as possible and have get monthly distributions with cash flow. And then we do have some upside from some of these transactions. We do have some equity kickers in some of them as well.
0: Mm-hmm. What is your crystal ball prediction? where where are you seeing the market heading in like three to five years?
1: So um, because we it we can't to, to try to guess where government is going to go is just it's just it, that's you, that what you don't don't want to do is that. So what we've done is try to develop a strategy where we don't no, no matter which way things go, we're protected. and so we keep all of our loan terms very short, about 18 months on average and so that each transaction is being originated in the most current value or market set of what's ever happening, whether it's federal or state or local, whatever it might be. And then in addition to that, that each time we come to a loan term, we can reevaluate if we want are willing to extend that transaction has new information developed that we might not be willing to extend this transaction, or we're gonna put in new covenants or require a principal reduction to extend it. So we, I'm not in the business of, of figure, making that guess. Um, I, I think that it's going to continue to, to grow. Um, you know, it's a 50 billion dollar asset class right now from the 36 states that we're looking at. So it's enormous. But that's just the real estate side. I continue to see it grow. I think that the the, the moral uh, morality of everybody looking being favorable to it is continues to to improve. Um, I do think we'll get to some some deconfliction, but I think it's going to be closer to 36 to 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 you know to 60 months. So I think it's going to be a lot farther out than most people um, do. I just don't know if the, this administration has has the political will to push it through. I do believe Biden would sign it if it came through. But I also believe that the last president, I don't think that any president wants to go against that right now if it goes through House and in, 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 uh, in the Senate.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. What what is the future for Polaris Equity Group? Are you guys gonna maybe file an IPO and and compete against um, IIPR in some way? Or,
1: yeah, um, we're we believe that the best strategy is just to remain private. We were asked to go public many times, um, and we believe that our strategy is is really good by not having any volatility of our share price. And so we might be doing really really well if we we're public. But if the market becomes to have fluctuations in, in volatility, that could affect our ability to raise capital and put us under pressure that we, we might not be able to raise money to fund an additional transactions. So we don't want that strategy. This particular asset class, it does better in market volatility, uh, a real estate downturn or a market cycle um economic market cycle. And so we don't we we want to be able to, to have our investors feel comfortable that we can go right through any of those events and not have those issues that are extra extraordinary pressures.
0: Okay. And did you have any advice for people looking to get into the industry? Would you tell them to go to Oklahoma as a new emerging market? Would you tell them to go to Oregon <laughs> for, for distressed assets? Would you tell them to go to be a producer, a processor, a retailer? Where would you send somebody who's like, I want to get into the cannabis space?
1: You know, um, it's it, 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 it requires so much capital for an individual or a small team to ramp up their capital uh, to go into this. I, I would... I would be trying to bet on states that are still yet to emerge cuz the the, the, the every, it's a it's a fair playing field from day 1. And so you if and I would generally try to work, work in your own local market, you have more political power or knowledge hopefully in that area. So, you know, if if your state is contemplating going um, uh, cannabis friendly, I would be trying to speculate on what properties uh, are potentially gonna fall into the areas that would be uh, acquisition targets. And I would go put those under option to purchase. Very little amount of capital necessary to do that. I would make that purchase contract uh, for purchase and or signs. Now you've got an upside. You never even have to close on the transaction. So that's that's probably where I would go or maybe where we go um, or, or what we would do if we were in the space. Um, so that, that, those are the, those are the easy targets. Once this estate has, is, has, is, is been, uh, gone cannabis friendly, you're competing against people that are got so much more capital than you. Um, and if it's somebody that already has a lot of capital, then they wouldn't be asking this question. They've already done the metrics and are looking for them. What's the best fit for their, for their growth.
0: What would you say to somebody who's trying to get into the industry to compete against you? BlackRock, somebody big, or just like a smaller version of the Plurus Equity Group? Do you have any uh, words of wisdom or cautionary tales?
1: (laughs) Well, BlackRock did did look at the space with us. Um, And so we've talked to them, and we talked to them a couple of years ago, Um, and they're in the space already. Um, There's many institutions, and we're tracking these people uh, already. To to get into the space of lending, you got to decide: Are you a value add lender? And if you are, um, you know, do you have the expertise to move into the space? It's it's difficult to go raise capital or to close your first transaction and tell your investors that you're now an expert in this in this sector. So you got to kind of work your way up. Or if, if I was entering the space in the way, our approach was we started very small. Um, loans in the million dollar range and we've worked our way up to loans in the 20 million dollar range over four years and looking at 2000 transactions and building our own proprietary databases we we built all the information that was Necessary for us to understand the market and to make those decisions as somebody that's emerging into it It's it's difficult to know if you're making the right choice because you don't have that data No, there's there's no uh, the third parties to pull that information from so I don't know. Uh, I, my my best would be just to start small and uh, work your way up, and you know, figure it out as you go. Um, that, I, I, that's probably
0: what I'd say. It's good advice. Do you foresee seeing negative rates? How would that impact the industry? If because rates right now are at an all-time low, but prices are at an all-time high, so you know your payments are kind of about the same. But what happens with negative interest rates that we've seen, you know, in in uh, Europe and other places? Do you foresee yeah, that yeah. at all happening?
1: So I think that you're talking about the prime lending rate for the United States. Um, and in that aspect, that only applies to co- uh, commercial uh, lender, or I should say institutional lenders because they're borrowing um, They're banks that are borrowing. as a private lender. We don't borrow our money from the federal government, so it has no impact. Um, so that would only affect those uh, loans that are with the credit unions or state banks that are using some it, um, uh, index, Libor or prime as they're lending, and if it's a loan that is not uh, fixed, you're going to have to look at what is what's going to happen with my rate. Um, I I do think that we are going to see some some inflation. I do think that the rate will start to creep up over time, um, but for for us, it doesn't that that doesn't matter to us.
0: What about the the inflation? They're calling it transitory. Is it is it here to stay?
1: I was just wondering when any inflation is non-transitory. I think anything <laughs> is transitory uh, given enough perspective of time. So, um, just don't really understand why they're um, focusing on that. Um, you know, uh, are we talking transitory for an administration or for a year or what? Um, I think anybody that's a, a, out in the regular world is experiencing significant inflation, whether it's there or whether the government says it's there or not, but I, I do see that happening. I think that'll artificially um, continue to pull up all real estate markets because in effect, what's happening is the dollar is becoming worth less. And so that property value is actually increasing in, in an amount of dollars, but it in the net purchase of, purchase value of those dollars is still the same. So it's a false premise that uh, those values are necessarily going up. And I I think in the traditional real estate market across all assets, it, that people are going to be more insulated and protected because of that. And, and that'll extend the possibility or how how long in the tooth this real estate cycle is.
0: hmm and having said that, I threw a lot of doom and gloom scenarios at you. Are you still positive, optimistic? Are you? How was your outlook for the cannabis real estate uh, industry? Is it is it positive, negative? Is it scary? What's your What's uh, your take?
1: I, I think it's very positive. This asset class is most similar to cold storage, data centers, or um, lab space, and it's a very unique type of sector. So. Things that you group in with real estate do not necessarily apply as you get into more narrow uh, or specialty asset classes. These, these tenants uh, don't move. They're not looking for a lower rate somewhere else. Once they've built out their facility, they're not going to give that up to go to somewhere else. They would just expand and build another one and uh, increase their capacity. So um, I, I, I think that this, this asset class is going to be uh, enormous. Um, you know, most of the transactions um, from a percentage have all been done out of equity. And so, you know, it'll be nice as, the, as there's more lenders join the space. You know, we, we expect them to come. We welcome them. Um, we've competed against the most competitive market in the, in the country on the West Coast. California has got probably the most uh, lenders per capita in anywhere in the country. And so we've successfully been in that industry for thirty years, and we're very comfortable with with how we do things. That we can compete uh, in this sector
0: as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I, we've covered a lot. Um, I want to. I'm going to put your your LinkedIn contacts and Polaris Equity Funds um, website in the show notes. I just want to know if there's anything. I mean, we covered a lot. Is there anything else that you want to to throw in at this time?
1: I thought of one thing. So a lot of people yeah. are. Curious of how we get equity upside in a transaction when it's a we're, not, we're only lending to the owner of the property and typically that only happen with an owner user transaction owner user means that those two parties are borrower and the cannabis operator are affiliated at the ownership level. Um, and in those transactions basically we do not change our underwriting in any way for how we underwrite that property but typically if there's a transaction that is distressed for time there's a purchase price that has to close and they need to move up in our priority of closing um, typically the last thing that they can do is offer um, some equity in that transaction so that might be options for warrants or it might be equity day one in either of those scenarios um, that we are not having to have any risk in that transaction. We only exercise the the option if we're in the money Um, and on the equity, we didn't have to give up anything other than moving the transaction in the priority of time. Um, So in both of those scenarios, those equity positions are held at the manager level and then dispersed down uh, as cash dollars to our investors as they're amortized in over the life of the loan.
0: And that's obviously flexible enough to where if you were in Washington state and Washington only allows 10% ownership from out of state, you would be flexible enough to um, figure out which state has caps on out of state ownership and all of that.
1: Yeah, we've got the most sophisticated attorneys in the country that have done the most transactions for all these um, that we, we utilize. So all of that is that you, our, our investors don't have to spend the time and money to do the due diligence and understand all those nuances. And we we've got that figured out.
0: Beautiful. All right. I think with that, we're going to roll this one up. I want to thank my okay. Rob Seacrest. He is the co-founder and president of Polaris Equity Group. I appreciate you being on the Talking Hedge.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Josh. It's a pleasure.
0: I appreciate it. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is the Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe or don't. And I'm out. Like smash that like button on your way out you and check out these other videos that we've got.